right. Well, hey, like I say every time I'm up here, my first words, good morning, Calvary Church. Uh, man, it's great to see all you guys. Appreciate uh, the great singing together. I think there's something uh, significant and meaningful about when a group of people come and their voices are unified to help us and remind each other. It's another way we can remind each other of, of truth and of hope. And uh, like every week, There are some of you sitting here today, and it is the best morning of your life. That brand new Tesla that you got for Christmas, man, it drove you here. It brewed an espresso for you on the way, right? And you're like, woo, life's good. You're about to hop a flight to like, you know, Turks and Caicos tomorrow. There's a bunch of you who it's an amazingly wonderful day. And as in life, the same reality is true in church, right? And then for others of you, this is not a wonderful day. This is a hard day. And I know it's a hard day because some of you who have already mentioned that to me coming in and uh, yesterday in this room we had a memorial service and so there's some of you that are grieving and uh, I've never experienced significant loss the way that some of you have but what I've heard from some of you who have is that the holidays um, cause you to think about it in a unique way right it always is there with you so so I know we're all in a bunch of different places together, and I'm just glad that we came together, and there is something significant about being part of a body, and God does work through that to allow us to be encouraged by others and provide to us a chance to encourage one another, and we do that through just fellowshipping, we do that through singing songs and affirming things, we do that through God's Word, and we'll have a chance to do all of that here this morning at Calvary. As we start this new year, we're continuing to look at and think about what we want to be about as a church that we launched our vision for last year, right? What we're striving together to do, what we want to do is to be a body of disciples who reach and impact other people with God's love and truth, right? We want to build a body of disciples who reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. And we have lots of different environments and ways throughout the week to do that. And our regular ministries are kicking off this week. So if you have students, if you are a student, if you're a mother of preschoolers, if you're a dude, if you're a dudette, uh, no matter where you find yourself, in life, we uh, have an environment for you where we can help you connect further to the body or some content and some engagement and discussion to help you grow as a disciple. We have opportunities after the services on Sunday mornings. We have classes and kids programming. We have that for adults as well. And so today we're kicking that off. And so at 1030-ish, right, depending on when I actually get into the sermon and stop this part of it all, at 1030-ish, when this service ends, we're going to have the world's best donuts and the world's most adequate coffee. I mean, is that not an amazing combination? The world's best donuts and the world's most adequate coffee for the adults. We'd love for you to stick around. We'd love for you to grab a donut, grab a coffee, talk to some folks for a few minutes, and then we're going to come up and we're going to introduce the teachers who are going to be teaching some adult classes. They'll tell you about those classes, what you can expect, what they'll look like, and then we'll just kind of launch into what God has for us, okay? So um, that's a little bit just in terms of announcements. We have these bulletins. We'd love for you to read them because we really do try to be purposeful. And uh, so appreciate you picking it up to find out what's going on, okay? Because it's an exciting year and we're so grateful for how God provided last year in terms of so many things and look forward to what he has in store for us this year. So, and I'm excited because as I'll share with you in a second, we're getting back to what we were in before Christmas and uh, it's going to be good. 
and I come expectantly every Monday because God is teaching me stuff that I never knew, and it's a privilege to be up here and uh, share some of that with you and see what he's going to do in our lives through it. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into our sermon. Uh, Father, I am grateful for uh, the body of Christ, and I'm grateful how we all have different gifts and different abilities and different stories, and you put us in each other's lives and you put people in our lives to encourage us and to shape us and to challenge us and to experience your love through them and to show your love to other people through how you work for us. So I'm thankful for the body here at Calvary and for the stories and for the lives and for the families and for the singles and uh, what you're doing and what you're building. And we know in leadership we're just stewarding what you're up to and may we steward it wisely and well. I pray for people that are in good places that they will be able to uh, praise you and realize that every good and perfect gift comes from you and they can just bring uh, thanks to you for how you've blessed them and the encouragement you've given to them. And I pray that we know that you are close to the brokenhearted. That is something that you promise. And so I pray that promise over the people this morning who are processing or grieving or thinking that they will experience your closeness and your sustaining peace. I pray as we move into your word, God, that uh, I will communicate it accurately and it will accomplish the purpose that you have for us this morning so that Jesus will be honored and glorified. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, over Christmas, uh, if you were with us and even if you weren't, right, in your own stories in your own families, what all of Christmas is about from a religious perspective is spending time thinking about when Jesus came to earth for the first time, right? When he was born in Bethlehem, we now celebrate on Christmas. We had a sermon series about that, focusing on that. You probably thought about that in your own families. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about when Jesus came to earth the first time. And today we're relaunching uh, back into a sermon series where we're going to spend the next months Uh, continuing to think about what's it going to be like when Jesus comes to earth the next time, right? We spent some time thinking about when Jesus comes to earth the first time, what's it going to be like when he comes to earth the second time? And we're going to be thinking about that because we're moving back into our sermon series called Maranatha, which is a series in the book of Revelation. And if you're new and you've never walked foot in the Calvary Church, what we do is we open up a book of the Bible and we go through it verse by verse largely, definitely chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph. And back in the fall, we kicked off a series in Revelation, not because, like you know, I'm not saying the world's ending, but it might be. But what we want to do is we make sure that we know uh, what does God have for us. He's given us every book in the Bible that is to teach us and to challenge us in terms of how we live. And so we're thinking about the book of Revelation. We're going to be in this book for months. And so if you're newer, that's what you can expect on Sunday mornings. If maybe some of you are Christians and you've never studied the book of Revelation, and this is a great chance for you to study a book of the Bible you've never studied. Maybe you're not a Christian. And this is still a great opportunity for you to stick around and say, man, you know, I'm trying to figure out what do Christians really believe, right? I know the ways that I like how they act. I know the ways that I like that I don't act. But when it comes down to it, what do they really believe about the story, right? What do they believe about hope? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd still love you to come because you're going to hear a lot about what followers of Jesus believe about hope and about what the story is and what we have to look forward to. Um, And like when I first kicked this off the first week, 
no matter where you are, it just seems that revelation and what's to come is this interest throughout our culture. This week, <clears throat> this is true. This is not a pastoral made-up story that just happens to fit, right? I received an email from some email purse thing, and it was this, this is what the email was about. How Elon Musk, do you all know Elon Musk? Okay. How Elon Musk was involved in artificial intelligence and how he's making these robots, and then it started to go into programming. And, it's, and this is where I started to get a little blurry-eyed and stopped reading it. But it was like, well, this number means that number, and, th and then all of a sudden you put it all together and it's 666, so therefore either Elon Musk is the Antichrist or his robot is, right? It, it is, there is this prevalent thought that revelation at different times, different moments keeps popping up into our culture. So we're going to talk about it, we're going to look into it, and... This morning, since it's been a few months uh, or a month or so since we've been in the book of Revelation, we're going to do a few things. We're just going to kind of review where, what the book's about. So we're going to think a little bit about the book structure and what we've talked about already and what's coming up. So it'll be a little review. Then we're going to talk about and remind each other as we're entering into this new structural piece of Revelation, how do we understand it, right? What, what's our, what are different ways people think about the book of Revelation and how can we understand the book of Revelation. And then we're going to jump into chapter 5, and it's going to be the first look ahead at what's to come. And we're going to think about what does that chapter even mean, and man, what hope <clears throat> is there for us from that chapter, okay? So we're going to get into a little bit of review. Today I'll feel a little bit teaching-y, but that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And then we have an amazing chance to end by thinking about some hope. So book of Revelation. When we kicked this series off, we talked about who wrote the book of Revelation, and in the very first chapter, we see some clues about that, because uh, in chapter one, the author identifies himself, and it says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. John, the author of the book of Revelation, was a guy named John, and there's two different thoughts about the two, which John it could be, but what we're taking the perspective of is this was uh, the disciple John, right? The apostle John. And we see a little more context, and we talked about it a little more, because John tells us a little more about the book about eight verses later, and it says this, I, John, in very large font, your brother and partner, <laughs> I feel like I'm well, never mind. I feel like I'm looking at some of y'all's phones, right? You're, some of y'all's texts are about this big, but we still love you. It's okay. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance in Jesus Christ, was on the island <clears throat> called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The book that we're studying was written by a guy named John, the John that was a disciple of Jesus, most likely, okay? Could have been another John who was some leader of some churches, but most scholars, and I agree, it was probably written by the disciple of Jesus. And he tells us the setting in which he wrote it. He was on an island called Patmos on an account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Here's a map we showed y'all the first week, and here is Turkey, and here is the island of Patmos, a small island off the western coast of Turkey, I don't know, 30, 40 miles, nah, probably not even that far off of Turkey. And here's a picture of it. If some of you flight to Turks and Caicos is canceled uh, because you fly southwest, then you can hop a flight to, if you've worked for southwest, that was rude, I apologize. 
don't email me. I'm sure you all will figure it out sometime. Um, <clears throat> here's the island of Patmos, and it's more populated now. But that is where the gentleman who wrote this book was hanging out. And he was not hanging out there because he took a vacation. He was actually exiled there. He had uh, obviously was a Christian, <clears throat> excuse me, and there was persecution going on and imprisonment for Christians, and he wouldn't be quiet. And so the Roman authorities were like, fine, we're going to get you out of here. And so they sent him on house arrest, on exile, over to this island of Patmos. And it was on that island that he received some visions. That's what he wrote down, that he received a series of visions through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he wrote those down on pieces of paper, and that is eventually what has become the book that we read as Revelation. So what's the structure of the book? Where have we been? Where are we going? We've got some timelines or from some charts for you, and so here's kind of where what, what's going on in the book. Uh, it starts off with some of the things we talked about, a little bit of the content, a little bit of what's going on, John's going on. And we've talked about all this so far. Then there was this amazing picture of Jesus and who he was and some truths. We spent the majority of our time in the fall uh, thinking about these letters to these seven churches. There were seven actual churches, seven actual groups of Christians gathering in small settings, and they were on a postal route, so they're pretty significant cities. And there, for most of them, there were some things they were doing well. Um, for most of them, there were some things that they were not doing well. And so these were seven letters written to these seven churches that we looked at saying, man, this, you guys are doing okay in this, but in this area over here, man, y'all are a bunch of knuckleheads. Like, what's wrong? <clears throat> and so there was some correction and some challenge to them, and we thought about that challenge. And then right before our Christmas series, we moved into chapter 4. Um, this, if there was a dividing line, this was going on in real time. So when John wrote those letters, those churches were existing, they were in real time, it was current, okay? In chapter 4, it's still real time because John then gets his vision of heaven, and we talked about that, and we talked about some truths about Jesus and who he is and what John sees. And we're about to move into chapter 5 today, and chapter 5 uh, as we'll talk about in the position we're going to take, is now the first chapter to start to look ahead to the future, okay? It's not what's going on now, it's what will be going on. And so we'll move into this last vision of heaven of God, and then we get to this place where if you've ever seen the movies, um, one night we'll just watch that 1970s Left Behind with popcorn, and it will be traumatic for us all, and we will weep in the fetal position because it's so scary. But if you've ever kind of, you've, you've, you've seen Kirk Cameron, you've read the books, Left Behind, maybe not, uh, you've, you've watched the Demi Moore movie, The Seventh Sign, or what, we're going to move in in chapter 6 through 16. Um, <clears throat> there's all this conversation about seals and trumpets and bowls, and it is overwhelming, and it is not pleasant, and it is... Um, some really challenging, hard, uh, uh, somewhat frightful stuff that's going to be in these chapters that we're going to read about. And throughout that, there's going to be these pieces where there's these random, like, little one-off moments. Like, as all this is going on, there's going to be some other things that we're going to see that are interspersed there. We'll talk about that. Then there's this deal where the city of Babylon is destroyed. It's likely symbolic. We'll talk about that. Then we'll get into the awesome stuff, right, man? Now, this is like when, this is like 
this is when Jesus is like, it's go time, okay? And he comes, and it's this victory, and it's glorious, and then the book ends with these scenes. Again, this is the position we're going to take. You can flip to the next side, slide. Come about July or August, when we're all complaining about how hot it is. And we're like, could it just be 22 degrees, right? In July and August, we'll get to this place where it's going to be about, you know, again, man, when God fixes it all, what does it look like? When God fixes it all, what does it look like? So that's the trajectory we're on. We've, we've seen some of the things, and we'll let you kind of have preview of coming attractions. Um, and then the question is, well, with all of this flow chart and all of this stuff about thousand years and heaven and earth and seals and trumpets, how do we understand the book, right? Like, like how do we understand the book? What's the big lens that we're going to come at with a book? Because if we come at the wrong set of glasses to look at the book, we're going to get all confused and perplexed. And we don't want to be perplexed. So here are, very quickly, we spent one whole sermon kind of almost on this. We're not going to do that. But we have already told you that there's four main approaches to the book. So when people read the book of Revelation, and they read kind of after the seven churches stuff, and they read about seals and trumpets and antichrists and dragons and fires and uh, and new heaven and new earth and Armageddon, there's four ways to people approach that, okay? One is this idealist way, and the idealist way says, hey, nothing in the book is about what's to come in the future. This perspective says all of it is just this uh, literary approach describing the fight between good and evil. It's all just literature describing the fight between God and Satan. None of it points to anything in the future. if you believe that, and there's, a lot, and there's some people who do, uh, it doesn't determine whether you're a Christian or not. I just happen not to think that that's the proper view, and most people don't. So kind of moving to another view that's more, a little more popular, it's this his, historist view. Historist. Oh, <clears throat> what a good word. And the thought, here's John. Here's John hanging out on Patmos, okay? And John writes all of these things, And here, I didn't update the slide from last fall, I'm sorry. It's now 2023. And this view takes the approach that when John wrote it, it was prophetic, but that everything that he prophesied about has already been fulfilled. And so what we need to do now in 2023 is look back and say, okay, that's talking about Napoleon. Okay, that's talking about Hitler. Okay, that's talking about an Apache helicopter. And we look back over all these events that have already occurred. I don't think, and most scholars don't think, that that's the appropriate view, because when you really get into it, it seems that there is, that we have not yet seen Jesus, right? Uh, I mean, I haven't. I don't think you have either, right? And so one of the things that was written about is seeing Jesus on this earth. That ain't happened, okay? And so I don't think that this is an appropriate perspective or view or makes sense. Again, if you do, it doesn't determine your eternal fate. The next two views are two of the probably the most popular one. Um, preterist and what we'll talk about in a minute. Man, this one I found really interesting, and we talked a little bit about it. Um, the thought was that John wrote on Patmos in an early date. And when he wrote it, everything was still prophetic. What he was writing about had not yet happened. But what this view argues is that those events that were written about 
happened when Nero became the emperor of Rome. And when Nero became the emperor of Rome, he caused so much suffering for Christians. And there was so much persecution. Jerusalem fell between here and there. And horrible things were happening in the city of Jerusalem. And that the thought is that John wrote this. It was prophetic looking ahead. And almost everything occurred when Nero was the emperor of Rome in the way in which he acted. Okay, Um, And there's still some yet to occur, but most of it is all there. This is actually really, there's a lot that's really compelling about this view. When you start looking at what Nero did and you start tracking with some of the things in Revelation, it's it's like, whoa, that's actually interesting. It, man, it it preaches well too, I'll just tell you, because it's like, ooh, secret Dakota ring stuff, okay? The challenge to this view is that here's Nero and here's 95 AD. And almost every piece of evidence suggests that John wrote the letter in 95 AD, okay? Ergo, big fancy word just to see if you're awake, right? Uh, which means what, what, if John wrote the letter here, he could not be writing about what Nero was about to do because Nero would have already done it. Does that make sense to you guys? If John wrote the letter here, then, man, this is probably the right view, but the challenge is it's really, really hard to say that John wrote the letter here because the book itself and a lot of things suggest that the letter was written here, okay? So this probably isn't the right view, but it's a really interesting one. And so for, for our sake, what we're humbly accepting for the, the study, especially from here on out, is this last view known as the futurist view, okay? Vast majority of scholars, vast majority of people who study the book and pastors are either in the preterist view or the futurist view. Here's what the futurist view says. John wrote the book, 95 AD. Here's when Nero was. John wrote the book, 95 AD. You and I are here in 2023. And what John wrote about is a bunch of stuff that has yet to occur. And so we're sitting here on this Sunday about to hear some words about things that are yet to happen, that will come in the future, okay? Um, And actually, there's some language in the first chapter where John is told, hey, write what you see now, what is happening now, and what will come. And so John wrote at 95 AD, you and I are here. Moving forward, everything we're going to read about has yet to happen. This is what this view says. And I think that this is the best view, most likely view. And so this is the view from the rest of the sermon series on we'll be taking. Um, Could we, I be wrong? Of course, right? I don't know. But it seems logical. And so we're going to go with it. And not heretical at all. It's very orthodox. What's really interesting is in this green circle now, Man, there's about 42 different perspectives. There's so many splinters in here. And if you've ever studied the book of Revelation, and if you haven't, but what we'll start talking about next week is there's all these theological big words, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, eight, you know, mid-tribulation, pre-mill, ah-mill, no-mill, flower-mill, right? In this green circle, Man, this Christian, there's like 72,000 different perspectives. Um, and so we're going to approach this all humbly, saying we don't know, but work through what it may seem to be. And this is the approach that we're taking, okay? The futurist approach. Uh, I feel like I want to teach a Sunday school class and say, any questions? But that would be chaotic, okay? So I will refrain from doing so. But a little bit of review about what the trajectory of Revelation is. 
And as we're getting back into it, just a reminder about the approach we are going to take moving ahead and looking forward to the book as far as it being things that have not yet happened, things that will happen. And we're going to work to understand that as well. So chapter 5 is the first step that you and I are taking today into the things that will happen. Boom! Whoa, I'm excited, okay? And there's kind of, chapter five is going to be where we are today. And there's two big ideas about chapter five as we move into it. The first big idea is this, that it is a continuation of chapter four. And in chapter 4, John starts to have this vision of heaven, and he's, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's this continuation of as he's having this vision of heaven, what does he see? And chapter 5 begins to move into what he sees about what will happen. And the structure of chapter 5, just if you want to write down this, it could be helpful to you if you like to know the structure. Chapter 5 is structured around three things. It's structured around, and I'm not going to call it out necessarily as we get to it, but you can be watching for it, okay? It's structured around a question in verse 2, the answer to that question in verse 5, and then a response to that answer in verses 9 through 14. The structure of chapter 5 is something that will happen in the future, most likely, Well, that's the perspective we're taking. It's a futurist perspective. And it's structured around a question in verse 2, an answer to that question in verse 5, and a response to that answer in verses 9 through 14. So let's move into it, okay? Verse 1 of chapter 5 of Revelation says this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw in the right hand... Man, the font got even bigger. It just keeps going. Then I saw... Ah! Maybe this is part of Revelation. One day the font shall eat you on the stage. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. When I started to prepare for this sermon, uh, I wasn't really sure the, how, whether to call a timeout here, okay? Because here's what we're going to have to start to talk about in the book of Revelation. We're, I don't, we're not going to talk about it fully here today. We'll, we'll talk about it later. But we're also moving in and continuing to be in this part of Revelation where the literary style is very symbolic. When we were in the seven churches, it was not symbolism largely. Largely was it like, y'all ain't taking care of the poor, y'all need to start doing that, period. Okay? No sin- From the rest of the Revelation on, we're going to hear things about dragons, we're going to hear things about trumpets, we're going to hear things about bowls, we're going to hear things about beasts, and the pro- much of that language is symbolism. Okay? And we start to see that here because it talks about someone seated on the throne who's holding a scroll. I don't know of a conservative evangel. I don't know of any liberal scholar, and I certainly don't know of any conservative evangelical scholar. There may be out there. I don't know of it. Nobody thinks that the person sitting on the throne is God. By the way, nobody thinks that God is actually holding a scroll. Okay, nobody thinks that this is um, this is 
like literal, okay? They all agree it's literary, and the form of literature and whatever technique here is a symbol or whatever it is, right? They don't think that God is actually sitting on the throne holding a scroll. What, and we're going to read about a lamb in a minute. Nobody thinks that there's actually a sheep with wool running around heaven, right? It's a symbol for Jesus. Just like when Jesus was on earth and somebody said, behold, the lamb of God. Nobody reads that to think that John the Baptist actually saw like a lamb running around, right? He was using a term to try to encompass an idea to convey a deeper truth. A term, symbols, to encompass an idea, to convey a deeper truth. When the Holy Spirit was inspiring this, he was inspiring John to use symbols as the form of literature to try to convey truths that otherwise couldn't be conveyed. We we hear a lot about the White House has issued a statement. Have you ever heard that phrase? The White House has issued a statement. Has anybody here, have you guys ever seen a picture of the White House? Has nobody here ever seen a picture of the White House? <laughs> uh, have you seen a picture of the White House? Yes, you have. I hope. Okay, good. Um, nobody, when you've heard the phrase, the White House has issued a statement, I don't think anybody in the room has ever thought that all of a sudden that house started to go, I don't think we should invade the country, right? Nobody thinks the actual house is talking. When we talk about the White House issuing a statement, what we're talking about is that the president has spoken on the issue, or there's been a formal decree from his staff who said it, right? It's this symbol to kind of stand for something to convey this idea. So that's what we're going to start to see a lot in the book of Revelation, right? We're going to see it again because we're going to talk about a lamb in just a few verses, and it's a symbol of Jesus. Okay, so got to understand that because sometimes what happens in the book of Revelation is when we start hearing about, uh, I saw these dragons who had eyes like this and tails like this, what people start to do is want to do more than just hold that as a symbol for something to convey a truth. They want to know what that actually is. And so people do get to the point of trying to decide, is that an Apache helicopter? Is that a Black Hawk helicopter? Is it the space shuttle? And we've kind of lost what the literature wants us to do and what the writer wants us to do. Okay, so what is trying to be, what's the deal with a scroll? What is trying to be conveyed about this? What is God trying to tell us about the future that's linked up in this scroll? Well, this scroll is written on the front and the back and it's sealed with seven seals. It's sealed with seven seals. So in that culture, when John would have been writing this, What a scroll was, it was a long piece of papyrus or animal skin, and it was written on. And then it was rolled up. I almost texted Jimmy T, uh, who helps oversee our kids' ministry. I'm like, bro, you have like a little kid scroll learn on here this morning? But I didn't. So it's rolled up. And then in that day and that age, part of what Roman law was is this very specific rules about sealing it. People used to write some things down this document, roll the edges up together, and then where it met, they would put these seals over it. And the Roman law, interestingly, required that if you had your will or a few other legal documents, you had to seal that document, guess how many times? Wow, have you studied this book before? Yeah, Roman law said that if there's an important legal document that your will or a deed or other things that you had to then seal it seven times. And what these seals would do is they'd be 
a few would be on top, but just sealed down that, that line where the scroll would combine, and it would make sure that nobody could alter or get into it to change what was written on that scroll because it was so important. <clears throat> there is something that is being conveyed here about this scroll having a weight and an importance and a significance and a value in this document that is critical as we think about what's to come. And so then scholars are like, well, what is, what is God through John trying to convey through the use of this literary technique of a scroll? And at that point, uh, commentators, theologians kind of land, there's a bunch of different thoughts, but they land into two different camps, two main camps about what this is. The first thought is that what this scroll represents is this deed, that God is holding, right, again, symbolically, but God is holding this deed to the earth. And he's saying, man, I have the right to give full authority to someone to own the earth and to take, take full authority over it, and I'm holding that in my hand to give to somebody. When we bought our house here in Trumbull, um, Man, amazing. So grateful for how God provided for that. Uh, there were some things we wanted to do to repair it. When the prior owner of the home still had the ownership right to it, I could not put on my amazing boots and flannel shirt and take my sledgehammer and put a hole in their kitchen cabinets, right? I couldn't fully fix it because there was still somebody there who was still claiming some ownership to it. But when I got full and final ownership, I could, I, if they didn't leave, I could evict them. I could get them out. And then I can go in and I could make it the way that I want to be. But before I could make it the way that I want it to be, I have to have full and complete and final, absolute, total claim that that is mine now fully. That's what a deed gives you. <clears throat> Some scholars, for reasons we'll talk about in a minute, think it's a deed. And then other scholars are like, it could be a deed, um, but they think that all of this writing on the scroll, again, symbolically, is God's plan, kind of his rescue plan. This whole book is about a rescue plan. In chapter 3, we get lost. In chapter 3 of the first book of Genesis, our great, 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 keep going about a thousand grandparents, they got lost. And as a result, we got lost. And we got out of a relationship with God and we were buried under the snow of an avalanche of sin or we were floating in the middle of the ocean with no boat in sight. And this book from chapter three to the last chapter is about God's plan to rescue us. This is a rescue story. This is a rescue story. And what some scholars think is, okay, what is symbolically here is this is God has laid out all of the steps of how he's going to rescue it, right? First, this is going to happen. Then I'm going to do that. Then I'm going to go around that building and that. Then the helicopter. And here's how I'm going to finally fix it and rescue and redeem and make it right. What's kind of interesting, again, if you're a person who writes things down or you like to see uh, links back to other pages in Scripture. Um, if, if you're taking notes, write down Daniel 12, chapters 1 through 4. I mean, I'm sorry, Daniel 12, verses 1 through 4 and verse 9. Daniel 12, 1 through 4 um, and verse 9. Because Daniel also contains some prophecy about what is yet to come. And in Daniel, this is what 
This is a preview that God tells Daniel about some of the stuff that's going to come, which is also seen in the book of Revelation. And this is what it says in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 and verse 9. At that time shall arise Michael, uh, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name was found and written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting company. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. God's talking about things are going to happen. There's going to be this day like never been before. But then there's hope. But then look what he says in verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Right? There's this idea, again, like, okay, Daniel, here's some things that are going on, but the rest of the stuff that's going on that I'm going to talk about, man, I want that sealed up until it's the right time to be answered. And what some scholars think is that this thing was a link, this scroll mentioned in verse 1 of Revelation 5 is a link back to all of that prophecy that God sealed up back in the time of Daniel with seals that this, and you can, the scroll language is going back to that to um, capture the fact that there's this sealed plan written down. The thoughts are that, man, this is either a deed that is going to be given to somebody to take full authority of the earth, or it is this rescue plan with all the steps that are involved of what's to come that's going to fix everything. And, and when you combine those two potential ideas together, there's kind of these two big ideas that pop out. The first one is this, that, man, there is someone who can take full charge of the earth and fix it. That this idea that there is someone who can take full charge of the earth and fix it. And the second idea that comes is this, and there is a plan to fix it. There is someone who can fix it, and there is a plan to fix it. And then that brings us to the question that is at the heart of this text, because then what John says in verse 2, here's the question, right? There is this scroll that God is holding in his hand, which either gives full authority or it has every step of the plan that's about to happen. And as it's unveiled, every step of the plan will happen. And it's this powerful thing about, man, wrapped up with that scroll is this idea that it's all going to be fixed. And so then there's this question that is raised in verse 2. It says this, and I saw a mighty angel back in Revelation 5 proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Who is worthy to get the full, complete, total ownership to the earth to come in and to totally take charge they want to? No holds barred. Who is worthy and able to effectuate an start this rescue plan so that things can get better. Who is the hero that's going to come? Who can reveal the plan of how things in the world are going to get better? And who's the person who's going to be able to make things better? The question that's reverberating is, man, where's the hero? Where's the hero? Who's the hero? And then, as John is seeing this vision, his first but not correct thought isn't a great one. Because look what <clears throat> he says. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth 
was able to open the scroll or look into it. Who's the hero? Who's going to come and take control and fix it? Who knows the plan to fix it? And people are looking and waiting with bated breath, and then John comes to this realization as there's crickets. And he says, man, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. This is referring to humans and angelic creatures. No one in heaven is referring to angels. John's saying, man, I'm looking around and none of these, none of these angels stepping up. No angels stepping forward and no one on earth. There's no human who can do this or under the earth. There's nobody who died as a human, totally human, who's going to come back and fix. Moses ain't going to come back and fix this thing. And John's looking around and there's this amazing potential for it all to be fixed and all to be okay. And John's like, man, where's the hero? And there doesn't seem to be a hero. Nobody's stepping forward. It's this hope deferred. Hope that's just waiting with nobody to seize it, to do it, and accomplish it. And look what this causes John to do. What was John's response? How is he impacted by the fact that nobody seems to be able to take charge to just fix it? Verse 4, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. I began to weep loudly. This phrase is trying to convey this emotion of deep brokenness and anguish. It's this deep emotion when somebody receives news that they physically and emotionally can't carry, that they're broken. It describes what Peter did. The apostle in the, the New Testament, a dude named Peter, who's his follower of Jesus, who's like, man, I'm your boy. I'm with you, Jesus. No matter what happens, right, you die, we ride together, die together, bad boys for life. And Jesus is like, nah, I'm not so sure, Peter. And, and, and Peter has a chance to stand up for Jesus and show he's got his back. And Peter's like, bro, I don't know the dude. And Peter realizes in a moment after he's betrayed Jesus what he's done, the way that he has betrayed the person who loves him the most, and he weeps. And it's the same phrase and the same word for weep loudly. Why is John weeping? Why is John, why is he just like in anguish? Well, a a stupid, trivial, similar emotion is, um, I keep telling myself that it's, (laughs) I keep telling myself that it's cheaper to keep driving 20-year-old cars than buying a new car. Right? Because like, then I don't have to have a car payment, okay? Except I have a repair payment and for five of them that's more than a car payment. Have you ever had that noise in your car? And it's like, blah, 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 and you take it to the mechanic and they're like, nothing wrong. Okay, you pull away and blah, take it to another mechanic, nothing wrong. You drive around with this noise, you go to 42 different mechanics and you're like, can somebody just fix my car? Right, silly example, but, if, but you're like, man, I'm just tired of dealing with this. Like, can, is there not anybody that can do this right? More serious example is maybe health. Maybe you're struggling with health, 
and it's not good. Or maybe you've watched a friend or a family member and nobody can diagnose what's happening. And this is starting to wear on you or them, not just physically, but emotionally. Because you're not able to do what you wanted to be able to do, what you used to be able to do, and there's worry and anxiety about what it could be. And you go to doctor after doctor after doctor after blood test after MRI after scan, and you reach this point after months of nobody being able to take care of it where you just think, can somebody just tell me what's going on and can somebody just help me? What John is doing is he's looking around and he's like, can somebody just help us? He looks at all the brokenness in the world. He looks at all the pain and he desperately wants that to be fixed because he knows that his friends have longings and he has longings and he just wants the hero to come to make it all okay. And when there's no hero, what John, who was a disciple of Jesus, thinks is, man, is this sin? Is this brokenness? Is this pain? Is it never going to end? He has longings for what he doesn't experience that are written into his soul that are meant to be experienced. And he's like, I just want to feel that. Can't somebody see what's going on and can't somebody fix it and make it better? That's why he's weeping. And remember his situation, because this is what's adding to his weeping. Old boy is in exile on an island. He's away from his family. He's away from his community. He's away from his job. He is a prisoner. He had in his life followed Jesus. He saw his leader get murdered. Then there was this amazing moment where his leader came back to life, but then his leader disappeared. John has seen people who followed Jesus with him be murdered. Did he attend their funerals? I don't know. But he's lost friends. And the people in the churches that he was pastoring are getting persecuted and killed and imprisoned for his fa their faith. And he, that's about to all continue to come. And he's like, man, this is messed up. Can't it be fixed? One pastor, I think he's preaching it a little better than it should be, but it is interesting to think about, is suggests that, man, John's weeping actually encompasses all of the weeping that any Christian has ever said when they've had something in their life happen and they've asked why. Why? Or they've prayed to God and said, when? When? That's why he's weeping because it seems that everything that he's hoped for and had faith in will never be realized. Have you ever been there? Doesn't mean you don't have faith. You have faith. That's the problem. The problem is that you have faith and you have hope and you just want to experience that. Have you ever been there? There's a quote I read this week. And if you've been there, maybe this quote encompasses what you felt, but it certainly encompasses what John felt. And here's this quote. That says, oops, we have one more slide before it. No, I'll read the quote because I got it here. This is what it says. 
I know what awaits me, but I long for it to be real now. Uh, again, maybe you can resonate with this. John certainly could have resonated with this. I know what awaits me, but I long for it to be real now. I want no more reasons to cry. I want a redeemed body. I want to sin no more. I want total healing. I want the end of darkness. I want the fullness of joy. I want the end to lies and hate and pain. I want pure worship. I want real unity between people of all colors, tribes, and nations. I want to see Jesus. I want all that God promises in the new heaven and the earth. We know what awaits us, but sometimes the terrain is unsure and the fog rolls in. Man, that's a great line. We know what awaits us, but sometimes the terrain is unsure and the fog rolls in. In this moment, John is drowning in the fog, drowning in the fog. And sometimes we'll drown in the fog. But the end of the story is never drowning in the fog. Because chapter 5 of Revelation isn't over. Because in the very next moment, there's another voice. And here's the next voice. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. This is language describing Jesus, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah, all sorts of Old Testament symbolism. The root of David saying the promised hero, he's got the resume. All of it goes back to Jesus. And then John continues, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Not an actual lamb, but Jesus, Jesus, standing, and this is so significant, as though it had been slain. Jesus, standing as the hero with his battle scars that he's carrying, that are part of the victory that he's about to bring about one day. Standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went, and this is so amazing, right? What John is about to say is, okay, there is somebody who can fix it. There is somebody who will fix it. And that somebody is Jesus. And then John looks to this one day when Jesus takes this step and says, enough. I'm done with the brokenness. I'm done with the sin, right? I have waited and Satan has been able to play his little games long enough, but bro, the king is coming. And on that day, what is symbolized in this next little chapter is, right, this next little verse says this, verse 7, and he went and he took the scroll. One day what John's saying is this person who's able to fix it all is going to reach out and take from the Father that scroll, and in that moment, it's as if is this, this deed to the earth where God says, man, we've let Satan run amok a little bit, but man, now it's time to evict that guy. It's time to get him out of the place he doesn't belong, and I am giving you the deed so that there's no more holding back. It is all yours, and you go get what is yours. Or this idea that Jesus, man, here's the rescue plan. Go execute it. And Jesus takes the scroll and is like, I'm in. 
I love the movie Maverick, right? And if you've not seen it, I'm about to ruin it. If you've not seen it, there's sin in your life, so you need to deal with that, okay? But there's this moment in Maverick where they're about to fly, and Tom Cruise has to make this decision, are we going or are we not going? Is it go or no go? And there's this moment when the music's swelling, and I get goosebumps, and he's like, attack formation seven. Then he goes, Dagger attack. Oh, it's this best. Jets fly, missiles go. It's like the attack, the rescue is on. And one day Jesus is going to take the scroll symbolically and it's going to be like, man, the rescue fully and finally is about to begin. The book of Revelation is a book of hope and about a rescue. It's about everything that is broken, including me and including you, being repaired. It is a good book. And what we see here is one day the hero will be unfettered and in all of his love for you and all of his power, he is going to do what he has to do to rescue you and to make you whole and to fix things and make everything the way that it should be. That's what it means when Jesus takes the scroll one day. It's like, man, it's go time. And for Christians, that's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. Authority is fully transferred for the Father to the Son to fully be able to do what he wants to do on the earth to evict the person who shouldn't be here, the enemy. And when the angels look to that future day, and on that future day when they realize that rescue mission is about to begin, the response is one of worship. And I'm going to invite the worship team up here as I just read over us what happens. Verse 8 through the end, this is what the text says. And we had taken a scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lord, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For, that for is really important. The reason Jesus is worthy to take the scroll and to open its scrolls is because he was slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, and every language, and every people, and every nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in the earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is written in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. The response to Jesus' ability to fix it and plan to fix it was just full and complete worship. And next week, because of the way that we preach at Calvary, the next thing we're going to read is in verse 6, chapter 1, when it says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And it will begin. The rescue fully and finally and completely is about to happen in chapter 6. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. But, but just two thoughts, and two quick thoughts, and then we'll leave. And just one is this idea that's a sermon of self, and I'm not going to preach a sermon of itself, but I call it out. 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the slaves, for you are worth slain, right? There's this link between Jesus' ability to bring victory and Jesus' sacrifice. He wouldn't have had the ability to bring victory unless he had also been willing to sacrifice and to serve. What qualified Jesus for the victory was his sacrifice. And in some of our lives and some of our stories, Whatever way God wants to use us and work through us and bring glory to himself and victory for his kingdom through you and through me, sometimes and most times is going to involve some sort of sacrifice and service for us. Right? Jesus was the hero, but Jesus is the hero who had battle scars. But those battle scars are the very thing that qualified him to be in the place to do what God wanted him to do in him and through him. And for some of us, what God wants to do in us and through us will involve our service and our sacrifice and our suffering and will be through that very thing that God positions you for the victory that he wants to bring through you. First thought. We've heard it said, maybe we haven't heard it said. I've heard it said by a bunch of pastors, so I don't say it, but I'm going to say it now, right? You, you can't get to resurrection on first, unless you first go through death. You can't get to resurrection unless you first go through death. And the second thing is this, this day is yet to come. And so as it is yet to come, what can you and I do right now today? What can you and I do right now today, right, while we wait for Jesus to fully fix it? 2 Peter 3.11 says this. And what he's talking about when you hear words of fire and dissolved is really the redemption and the recreation of the earth. So just know that, and here's what it says. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, here's the question. What sort of people aren't we to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the coming of the day of the Lord? The question is, that day's coming, but on this day, what God puts before you and puts before me is, okay, that's, that day's coming, but on this day, as you wait for that day, What sort of people ought you to be? And as we wait for God to fully and finally come and fix his kingdom, you have an opportunity in the place where God has put you today to make life and the world around you reflect his kingdom a little more. You have an opportunity in your minivan on the way home with your family to lead and to conduct yourself in such a way that that minivan pulling out on White Plains Road reflects the kingdom of God a little bit better because of how you're living. When you get to your neighbors and their Christmas tree is rolled over your property line and it drives you crazy because it's ruined the bulbs you planted for the spring and you want to go like pound on their door and yell at them, man, you have a chance in your neighborhood today as you wait for the coming day to have conduct yourself in a way that aligns with the kingdom of God. What type of person will you be? And I think what happened decades ago for a lot of evangelicals is what evangelicals did when they got deep into Revelation is this is what they did. Well, if one day Jesus is coming and everything's going to be fixed, well, then we can just put it on cruise control till that day. We, there was this thought, if it's all going to be redeemed, if it's all going to be fixed, if it all kind of doesn't matter, then that's all that matters. And what I do here and now, eh, I'm just going to coast. Man, this book is never about coasting. The reason... The Bible tells us in 1 Peter that Jesus has not yet taken the scroll to fix everything is because he is waiting till everybody can have a chance to come to repentance. 
the reason I love, somebody told me this the other day, I think it was Don Diani, right? That if, if all of this was just about fellowship, we'd be up in heaven, man. I'd be cruising around on a forerunner that didn't have a rusty bumper and I'd be buying you barbecue, right? If, if what happened after we became Christians was only to be just about us fellowshipping in a little holy hutter, God would have taken us out of here. It's not. It's about us doing something to expand the kingdom so that other people can experience the hope of Jesus. And we dare not put it on cruise control just because we're waiting for Jesus to fix it all. Because what Jesus says is, no, no, bro. I want you to have a role in helping me fix it all. What kind of people will we be? And next week, we're going to see that first step and that first seal, and the rescue plan begins, and I hope that you'll come back and be with us. We're going to sing a song. We're going to worship together some amazing truths and remind ourselves of truth, and then, uh, man, I invite you, if you've got kids, we'd love to be able to serve your family by helping disciple your children and put your children in community, and there's a way to do that after, and if you're an adult, we'd love to, man, just give you an amazing donut, adequate coffee, fellowship with you, connect with you, and then tell you some opportunities you have to grow in Jesus. So uh, thanks for being here. Let's worship, uh, and let's praise our King.